Zephaniah. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us this evening. We're thankful for this time that we have together, and we ask for your wisdom as we uh, consider this book uh, in our Bibles. So give us understanding tonight. Help us to be faithful to what it says, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, uh, I was trying to basically keep into some chronological order with uh, these prophets. And, um, you know, the Ezekiel and Daniel, they go together so well that I just kept going uh, in, in that order. But Zephaniah actually precedes um, both of those books. Okay, Zephaniah comes before, chronologically, it comes before Daniel and Ezekiel. And so his prophetic ministry takes place during the reign of uh, Josiah, King Josiah. You see that in chapter 1, verse 1. Okay, chapter 1, verse 1 there, it tells us, In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, does anybody remember what years Josiah reigned from? Does anybody remember, was Josiah a bad king or a good king? He's a good king. Okay, so that's helpful. So, Josiah reigns. From 641, 640, 641-ish, right there, to 609 B.C. 609 B.C. Now, as you think of prophetic history, what's the next big thing that happens after 609 B.C.? Yes, Nebuchadnezzar comes into Judah, and of course, we have a description of that in Daniel chapter 1. So this happens before um, Josiah is off the scene. Of course, Josiah is killed by Pharaoh Necho II when uh, Pharaoh was taking the Egyptian army up to Carchemish to ally with the Assyrians to try to stop or slow down the Babylonians from taking over as the world empire and as Pharaoh was taking his army through Judea, Judah, Josiah goes out to stop him and Josiah gets killed. Okay, that happened in uh, 609 B.C. Um, Now, we also know that this book had to be written before 213 B.C. Okay, if you turn to chapter 2. Did I say 213? I meant to say 612. I don't know why I said 213. 612 B.C. We're we're in the 7th century here still. So if you turn to 213, chapter 2, verse 13. If you look down there in the middle of that verse, you'll see the name of a city. What's the name of the city in chapter 2, verse 13? Nineveh. Okay? So when this book is written, Nineveh is still a prominent city and Assyria is still in power. Nineveh does not get taken, destroyed until 612 B.C. And 612 B.C. is when Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabonidus, I believe, or Nabopolassar, Nabopolassar, he makes an alliance with the Medes, and they destroy uh, Nineveh. So they take Nineveh. So this has to be written before that. Okay, so... The setting of what we're going to find in this chapter seems to fit more with the earlier part of Josiah's reign. 
Okay, because you know Josiah, he had a series of um, revivals that uh, took place under his reign. It seems like this would be towards the earlier part just because of the message that is given here. Uh, we also need to recognize here at the beginning that almost this entire book is given over to judgment. Almost the entire thing. Forty-one verses are about judgment. It's about 13 of them that are about restoration. Okay? So it's almost all about judgment. And so let's keep that in mind. So let's, uh, let's look at this in the first 18 verses. So chapter 1. Verses 1 through 18, that shouldn't be 18, that should be uh, maybe 8. That shouldn't be 18, that should be 3. <laughs> not, not 1 through 18, it should be 1 through 3. Is that what yours says? What, what does your all's notes say? 18, scratch that and put a 3 there. Okay. So, in verses... One through three, of course, verse one is just an introductory thing. But verses two and three here, we're told about a time of general judgment. And the Lord says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. So what I mean, you listen to that kind of language and um, it, it seems pretty bad. Um, this is the Lord often uses this type of language, consume off the face of the earth, that type of things when it's talking about judgment. So this is talking about judgment in general, and it's introducing us to this major theme in this book, this theme of judgment that will be here. Uh, and then as we get to verse 4, and I think verse 4 should be, it should be 4 through 18, we have the, a time of judgment on Judah. So the first uh, part is about a judgment in general. It, this is including everything, the whole earth. There's going to be this judgment in verses Two and three. But when you get to verse four, there's a switch that takes place. And now he's going to be talking about uh, Judah in particular. So Israel, the northern kingdom, does not exist at this point. Right. They went into captivity in 722 B.C. So they're not around. So this is all going to be about Judah. Um, and they are going to represent the kingdom of the, the Jews. So the Lord is going to focus his judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. So verse four, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So against Judah and uh, Jerusalem. And the reasons for this, the reasons for this judgment is if we continue on in verse four, I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. So Baal worship. Okay, the judgment is going to happen because of Baal worship. In verse 5, if you drop down to the middle of verse 5, those who worship and swear by the Lord, but those also swear by Milcom. It's another foreign god. So, worship of Milcom is another reason. In verse 6, we see the final reason given for the judgment of the Lord. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. So, these three reasons, false worship of Baal, false worship of Milcom, and the fact that the Jews have turned back from the Lord. Now, it's, it's really much worse than it seems. If you look back in verse 4, in the middle of verse 4, where it talks about Baal, I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the, my Bible says, 
pagan priests. Now, at the end of verse 4, does anybody have something different than pagan priests? Mine says idolatrous priest, and then it says and pagan priest. Anybody have something different than that? Just the priest? Okay, that's all that's there is the priest. But uh, what uh, doesn't come over really good in English is the fact that these are two totally different words. So idolatrous priest is a word, and then there's the priest. So the, the uh, idolatrous priest, that word comes from the Hebrew word komer, komer. The normal word for priest is Kohen. Cohen. So you've heard of somebody's last name's Cohen? It's a word for priest. So if someone's last name is Cohen, maybe they were related somewhere in the past to the priesthood. You never know. But that's the normal word for priest is Cohen. But the other word, Comer, speaks specifically of priest who are dedicated to idol worship. So these are like guys who grew up and, you know, their family business is to worship Baal. The Kohen, the priest at the end of verse 4, these are actually priests of the Lord who are mixing worship of the one true and living God with the worship of Baal. And so it's really pretty bad, pretty bad. And so the Lord's going to judge them for that. Now, at the end of verse 5, this God, Milcom, is an Ammonite God. He's an Ammonite God. Of course, uh, the people here in verse 6 have turned back, have turned back. Okay, Shug. Shug means to turn back in Hebrew. Does anybody know what the word for return or turn to is in Hebrew? Shuv. So you got shug and shuv, and they're the opposites. Okay? Shug, shuv. Shug means to turn away from, turn your back on. Shuv means to turn to or to return. So they're they're opposites type thing. And that's the word. Shuv is often the word that's used of um, turning back to the Lord. Okay? To return to the Lord. And so the Jews have turned their back on the Lord. So they're going to be judged. Now, as we get to verse 7, verses 7 through 13, we see the coming day of Yahweh in which he will judge his people. So this coming day, okay, the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord. Okay, this is a day of judgment. Now here you'll notice it says, be silent in the presence of the Lord God for the day of the Lord, what? Is at hand. Day of the Lord is at hand. Now, that particular phrase is only used six times in your Old Testament. Six times. It's used in Isaiah, chapter 13, verse 6. Isaiah 13, 6. It's used in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, chapter 30, verse 3. It's used twice in Joel, two times in Joel, chapter 1, verse 15, 1, 15, and chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Finally, it's used in Obadiah, Obadiah 15, okay? And of course, obviously it's used here. Okay, but that's the only times it appears here. And uh, to say the day of Yahweh is at hand is to express the certainty of it. Not that 
it's going to be in the next second or in the next day. It's just saying that this is an absolutely certain thing that's going to happen. It's imminent. It's imminent. Okay, the day of Yahweh is going to be like Israel's religious festivals where everyone is to come to Jerusalem and present themselves before the Lord. Look at verse 8. And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice. So that's alluding to the festival time where all everybody is expected to come to Jerusalem and to celebrate these feasts, these sacrifices before the Lord. So this is the picture we're getting is that in this judgment, everybody's going to come. Everybody's going to be in Jerusalem, all the Jews. Continuing on in verse 8, we see that on this day, the leaders of Judah will be punished along with those who practice false worship. Okay, in verse 8 it says, And I will punish the princes and the king's children. So these are the rulers. And all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. Now, we might not think that that's a big deal, but it... It was a sign of apostasy. Verse 9. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. Now, the last phrase there, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit, we can kind of figure out that's a bad thing, right? That they're revolting against the people over them. But what's this phrase before that? All those who leap over the threshold. What do you think that's talking about? What's that? Dagon? Well, leaping over the threshold. Right. But this is, a, this is connected to false worship. It's a false worship. So they're involved in false worship, leaping over. The, and this would be the threshold of the temple. Okay. So they're involving the temple in false worship. All right. So the Lord's going to judge them for that. He's going to judge. This is all imminent. It's going to happen. Um, it's at hand. And in verses 10 and 11, we see the entire inhabitants of Jerusalem will mourn and wail. It says in verse 10, and there shall be on that day, you get this emphasis on that day, the day of the Lord. Says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, a loud crashing from the hills. Well, you inhabitants of Maktesh. Somebody's Bible say something different there. What's that? Mortar. Okay, both are not very good descriptions here. That's talking about the inhabitants of the Maktesh. That's referring to the slopes off of Jerusalem. You know, remember Jerusalem? I'm going to get this seared in everybody's brain. You know, Jerusalem, that's right. You got three valleys and you got two high spots there. So what's in between the hills and the valleys? Slopes. Slopes. Okay? So people would have been living on these slopes. Now, they're probably not living on the western side it's got a lot of trash in it <laughs> that's the valley of Hinnom so but they're living in, on these other places and and uh, which what um, Zephaniah if I say Zechariah just I mean Zephaniah okay but uh, what Zephaniah is expressing here is that uh, this mourning and wailing is done by everybody in the city, no matter where they live. You know, the slopes aren't the best place to live, you know. 
Um, so it doesn't matter. Everybody's going to be mourning and wailing. It doesn't exclude anybody or any place in the city. They're all going to be under the Lord's judgment. Now, as we come to verses 14 through 18, we see that the day of Yahweh is described in harsh terms, very harsh terms. It talks about noise, being bitter. It talks about mighty men crying out. It says the day of wrath. And then in the next section, so verse 15 says that day is a day of wrath. And then it says that it's got it's got five what we call doublets. So it's got five sets of two here. A day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation. And um, you can't really tell here too much in English, but in Hebrew it has a cadence and a tone to it. So with these words, a cadence and a tone that goes along with it. And what that does is it escalates the idea. It escalates the idea that all these have. So it's going to be a really, really bad time. This is really, really harsh words that the Lord is using against his people and against his city. So in these, basically in chapter 1, we're told that judgment's going to happen. We're given a description of the judgment. Nobody's going to be excluded. This judgment's going to focus on Judah and Jerusalem. People are going to be wailing. People are going to be mourning when this judgment happens. And it's at hand. The day of Yahweh is at hand. Okay, this is what you can expect. It's going to, it's certain. Now, as we come to chapter 2, there's a slight shift in the tone. Just a very slight shift in the tone. And in verses 1 through 3, we have a call for Judah to repent. A call for Judah to repent. It says, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Okay, not very good word there, undesirable nation. Before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Okay, this is the warning. This is the uh, exhortation. It says, before all this happens, before chapter 1 happens, verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld His justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So he's calling people to repent. He's saying, seek the Lord. Now, I want you to notice at the end of verse 3. If these people seek the Lord, will the Lord, does he say he's going to withdraw his judgment? No. No. Look at what it says there at the end of verse 3. It may be that you will be hidden. You'll be preserved. You'll, you'll personally be spared in the day of the Lord's anger. So the Lord is not going to withdraw his judgment. Even if these people repent. The judgment's coming, but he's telling these people who will seek the Lord... That they may be protected. They may be shielded in some way from the anger of the Lord when his judgment comes down on Judah and Jerusalem. And so you got this call to repentance. You got this exhortation to seek the Lord. To seek the Lord. Now, remember, one of the reasons that God's judgment is coming on them is back in chapter 1, verse 6. Back in chapter 1, verse 6. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, 
Then what does it say? Chapter 1, verse 6. Have not sought the Lord. So, you know, the, the general tone of the nation is they're not seeking the Lord. And so the Lord says, if you seek me, if you seek me, you might find relief. You might find uh, relief. And so now, in the next section, which is chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of the chapter, verse 15, we have a description of the surrounding nations to be judged. Okay, the surrounding nations to be judged. And this fits, this fits with what has just come before in that the certainty of the judgment of the Lord on these Gentile nations should be an example to Judah that they should repent and turn back to the Lord and seek the Lord. Okay, so you notice in verse 4, the first word in verse 4 is what? For. It's giving us a reason. It's telling us, you all in Jerusalem, you should seek the Lord for, because. And then he's going to talk about the judgment on these nations. Um, Notice real quick the nations and peoples that are mentioned here. Talks about Gaza being forsaken. Ashkelon being desolate. That Ashdod is going to be driven out. Ekron is going to be uprooted. Cherethites are going to be dealt with. Canaan, the Philistines, destroyed. Moab, Ammon, made like Sodom and Gomorrah. Ethiopians will be slain. Assyria, Nineveh, it's going to be a desolation. Now, in the first part of these nations that are mentioned here in verses 4 through 7, these peoples, these places, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, they share something in common. Do you know what they are? What that is? What's that? Right, right. These are all Philistine cities. Now, is, are the Philistines an issue in Zephaniah's day? No, they're not an issue. The Assyrians are an issue. The Philistines are out of it. Okay? Uh, they are out of it. However, however, were the Philistines ever an issue? Yes, they treated, they treated Israel harshly. They treated Judah harshly. And so while the Philistines are not a relevant political entity, uh, power of that time, they were still considered the enemies of Israel. And if you look down to verse 7, you'll see that the remnant of the house of Judah is going to possess these places. Verse 7, the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. I probably should mention, uh, I think all except for Ekron, all these cities here are coastal cities. They're right on the coast of the Mediterranean. Ekron is just in inland a little bit, not very far. But they're all on the coast. So, Talks about the sea coast here. This is Philistine territory. Talks about the coast here in verse 7. Philistine territory. And this shall be for the remnant of the house of Israel. They shall feed their flocks there. Or I should I said Israel, Judah, the remnant of the house of Judah. They're going to feed their flocks on these Philistine lands. In the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at, e- at evening. What's that tell you? If they're lying down in the houses of Ashkelon, they're living there. They've possessed it. For the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. So, 
in the midst of this description of the judgment on these particular nations, we have this insertion about what's going to happen in the future in restoration. That the, that the remnant of Judah is going to possess these places. By the way, so this idea of remnant comes up again. So if there's a remnant, something must have happened so that there's a remnant. You know, something must have happened. Okay? Either the wicked have been taken away, so there's only true believers that are left, or part of the nation has been destroyed, and this is just what is left of the nation. Something has happened so that there is this remnant. So that's these Philistine cities. But then notice in verses 8 through 15, there's a particular focus on Moab and Ammon and then Ethiopia and Assyria. So in verses 8 through 11, the focus is on Moab and Ammon. And the Lord's going to utterly destroy these two nations. Verse 8, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon, with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Okay, so it's talking about these two nations always coming against Israel. Now, the first set of cities in verses 4 through 7 They're on the coast. Which direction is the coast from Jerusalem? It's west, right? Moab and Ammon are which direction from Jerusalem? East. East. They're on the other side of the Jordan. So the Lord has picked out these places a group of places on the east and a group of places on the west that he says, I'm going to judge these nations, east and west. Okay? And then we'll see, when it talks about the Ethiopians and the Assyrians, those represent the north and the south. So this is a way of the Lord saying, I am going to judge all of the surrounding nations, all these nations around you who have treated you harshly, I'm going to judge. So the Lord's going to judge Judah, chapter 1. And the Lord's going to judge these surrounding nations. And so Moab and Ammon, they're going to be utterly destroyed. It says they're going to be treated, in verse 9, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at the the second part of verse 9. It describes what it's going to be like there after the judgment comes. Overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them. So the residue of my people means absolutely the weakest, lowest, you know, the bottom of the heap. These people are going to be able to go over there and plunder and Ammon and Moab and the remnant of my people shall possess them. Now. Let's bring that over till today. Okay? Today. Modern times. 2023. Ammon and Moab. What nation is that? Jordan. So you can imagine Jordanians would not like this too much. Because this is telling us. This is telling us. As a part of the judgment against these nations... God is giving their land to Israel. They would not like that too much, would they? Not at all. Not at all. So we have this description of judgment. And this first one is judgment from the west to the east. From Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, etc. to Moab and Ammon. And then we have this description And verses 12 through 15 of the north and south of the judgment says in verse 12, you Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by the sword. So um, at this point in history, the rulers of Egypt, 
were actually Ethiopian. They had an Ethiopian ancestry. Okay? So, when it says Ethiopia, think Egypt. Ethiopians, think Egypt. You shall be slain with my sword. Verse 13. And he will stretch out his hand against the north. Destroy Assyria and make Nineveh a desolation. Of course, we know that happened in 612 B.C. And so here's all this judgment that's coming against the nations and the Jews. Judah in particular is going to benefit from it. And so the book begins by talking about a general focus of judgment, the Lord's judgment. He then goes into talking about the judgment that will be on Jerusalem and Judah. And then he goes in and says, repent, turn to the Lord, seek the Lord, because this is what I'm going to do to all these nations. You're going to see me judge them and you should repent. And then as we get to chapter three, we have Judah's indictment. Judah's indictment. Okay, in chapter three. All of chapter 3, we see Judah's sin and then restoration. In the first part of chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Judah's sin is set forth. It's their indictment, the Lord's indictment against them. And notice in verses 1 and 2, we have a description of the nation as a whole. This is a description of the nation as a whole. Woe to her who is what? Rebellious and polluted. So this is describing the Jews in Judah. Uh, She has not done what? Obeyed my voice. She has not received correction. Right? The Lord has been trying to chasten Judah, Israel, all along, and they have not received it. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Okay, so this is the general description of the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. They're rebellious. They're polluted. They don't obey the Lord. They don't receive his correction. They don't trust the Lord. And they don't draw near to the Lord. Now, in verses 3 through 5 we have the description of the rulers of the nation and their sin and wickedness. Verse 3, her princes in her midst are roaring lions. In other words, like they're going around eating people. Her judges, so that's the princes, then you got the judges, are in evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Then her prophets are mentioned in verse 4. They're insolent, treacherous people. Then the priests are mentioned. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. So four classes of people mentioned here. Princes, judges, prophets, and priests. And they're all wicked. Every single one of them is wicked. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will not do unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust know no shame. Okay? They just keep on doing it. Keep on going. Now, in verses 6 through 7, we see that Judah has not responded to the Lord's previous chastening. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. Okay, let me just stop there. The Lord says, I have cut off nations. Okay, these, Cutting off these nations is an example to Judah about what the Lord can do to a wicked people. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are de- uh, devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction. They don't receive instruction. They're not not corrected. 
so that her dwelling would not be cut off. Despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. So the Lord says, look, I've destroyed these nations. And I've dealt with you harshly, verse 7. He's dealing with them harshly there at the beginning of the verse. So that they would respond to him. So that they wouldn't be cut off. So that they would receive the instruction of the Lord. And what do they do? They get up in the morning and they go about committing wickedness. That's what they do. Okay? So this is the Lord's indictment against Judah and Jerusalem. He's spelling out their sins. He's telling them point blank. You're a sinful people. Okay? You're rebellious. You're polluted. You're oppressing the city. You don't obey. You don't receive instructions. You're not trusting the Lord. You're not drawing near to the Lord. And your leaders are all corrupt as well. The, the rulers are corrupt. The judges are corrupt. The prophets are corrupt. And the priests are corrupt. And you haven't paid any attention to what I've been doing. I've been judging nations. I've been dis- uh, disciplining you. And the only thing you do is the next day you get up and you repeat all the same sins over again. So this is the indictment. This is Judah's sin being set forth. Now, in verses 8 through 13, we have a major shift. At this point, the Lord, Yahweh, speaks of a day of world conversion. Okay, this is where the restoration part comes in. Up to this point, it's been sin. Now we're going to see restoration. Sin and judgment up to this point, And now the last part of the book is about restoration. So in verse 8, we find that there's going to be a gathering of the nations for judgment. Verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day... I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. So the Lord's going to gather the nations. These are the Gentile nations. He's going to gather them together. And he's going to judge them. That's the first thing that's going to happen. But secondly, after this judgment, in verse 9, we see the restoration of the nations. The restoration of the nations. Verse 9. For then I will restore to the peoples, plural, peoples, plural, a pure language or pure lip that they may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. The uh, first or the second word in verse 9 is then. Then. At the beginning of verse 9 there. And that marks the turning point. The turning point from the theme of judgment to the theme of restoration. And we see in verse 9 that the peoples are going to be restored to a pure language and pure lip. And this is going to be done for the purpose, for the purpose that the nations can then call on the name of the Lord to serve him. Now, pause. Let's think about this. Where it says, then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they may call on the name of the Lord and serve him in unity with one accord. Think of language and unity. Language and unity. Where do those two themes come up? Very first in the Bible. Where's the first time we see these two themes brought together in the Bible? Babel. Okay? Remember, at Babel, they were all together and they had one language. 
What did the Lord do? He what? Scattered them. Okay? He scattered them. So what we see here is that this is very likely an allusion to the Tower of Babel where all the people were with one language, but instead of calling on the Lord at that time, they used the unity of their language to exalt themselves. And so this is a kind of reversal of that. And they're going to come together and they're going to serve the Lord with one accord or in unity. So in terms of the kingdom, we should note that the Gentile nations, the Gentile nations are going to call upon the Lord. When they are restored, they will call on the Lord and they will serve the Lord in unity. So while the kingdom, in the kingdom, the nation of Israel has preeminence, it doesn't discount all the other nations on the earth. And so you might wonder, well, if there's other nations on the earth during the kingdom, what are they going to be doing? This is what they're going to be doing. This is what they're supposed to be doing. So there's this restoration of nations. And then in verse 10, we see that there will be unified worship. Unified worship. Verse 10. We have a little uh, serenation. That's uh, Susie. So we have unified worship in verse 10 from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. My worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. So people from the furthest reaches of the earth are going to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. So that phrase uh, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, that's just like saying Farthest reaches of the earth. Okay, they're coming to Jerusalem. He calls them my worshipers. Now, this seems to be clearly a reference to the Gentiles just spoken about in verse 9. That it's going to be these Gentiles who are the worshipers of God. And then we have this phrase, the daughters of my dispersed ones. The daughters, the children. Of my dispersed ones. Now, this is a little bit trickier because we're so used to hearing about the Lord scattering the nation of Israel and regathering them that, you know, they've been dispersed, right? Okay? So there's two possible ways that we can take this phrase, the daughters of the dispersed ones. It could refer to Israel. It's possible that it could refer to Israel, but. I don't think that is the most likely interpretation because while the idea of Israel being scattered is found throughout the prophets, it's really not all that prominent right here. In fact, you don't hear anything about Israel being gathered until you get to verse 18, verse 18 and 20. But it's not necessarily clearly what we think about the regathering of the nation uh, into the kingdom. Okay, so. That's the first place. And that's, believe it or not, verse 18 is a long way away from verse uh, 10. It's a long way. So it's it's kind of a different context. All right. So that doesn't seem likely that the daughters of my dispersed ones is Israel. The second interpretation that it could be is, of course, the nations. And this fits the immediate context because the nations have been gathered in verse 8. And in verse 9, we have this allusion back to Babel where they were scattered. The nations were scattered at Babel. And so now he's bringing them together again, and they're going to have one language. They will have this pure language, this pure lip to call the Lord and to serve him with one accord. But there's the point I want you to get is there's going to be a unified worship of God. There's going to be a unified worship of God at this time. 
Verse 11, we see that there's forgiveness of sin and spiritual renewal. This is all dealing with the nations. And that day you shall be shamed. You shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgressed against me. You're not going to be ashamed of it. Okay? That's where forgiveness comes in. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. There's going to be a spiritual renewal. There's going to be forgiveness of sins involved here. And in verses 12 through 13, we now see how Israel fits into all this. And Israel will have a place of preeminence among the nations. Verses 12 and 13. I will leave in your, you peoples, you nations, Gentiles, your midst, a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall the deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. So here's a time that you got the remnant of Israel getting along with the Gentile nations and Israel has no fear. They don't have to fear. They don't have to fear Gentiles coming against them. And so I take verse 12 that the meek and humble people that are being left in the midst of the nations, that these are the Jews. I think they're in the midst of the nations. So the nations are going to be around Israel. Okay? And then we see in verses 14 through 20, so the rest of the, the book here, where this is Israel's day of rejoicing. So this is, this is a, an expression of celebration. Why should there be celebration? Well, the Lord's going to take away the judgments. He's going to defeat the enemies of Israel. He, he is going to be king in Israel in their midst, and there's going to be no more disaster. So verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Now notice that. The Lord is the King of Israel. And where is He? In heaven? No. It says He's in your midst. He's among them. Okay, that certainly presents us with a picture that the Lord's going to be on earth, right? He's going to be among the people. You shall see disaster uh, no more. And then verse 16 says, In that day of the day of restoration, says, It shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, let not your hand be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So in the day of restoration, the Lord your God is in your midst. He is the mighty one and he's the one who delivers. He delivers you. will deliver you. And he's not only going to be delivering, but look at how the Lord responds to Israel. Look at his reaction to Israel during this time of restoration. It says he will rejoice. The Lord is going to rejoice over Israel with gladness. He will quiet them with his love, his care for them. Is going to calm them and comfort them. He will rejoice over you with singing. So it seems like the Lord's going to sing. Seems like he's part of the celebration, doesn't it? 
seems like not only is Judah and Jerusalem, the Jews, not only are they celebrating, but the Lord is taking part in this celebration. And uh, we see that the Lord is going to treat them affectionately in verses 18 and 19. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you to whom is reproach, uh, its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time, I will deal with you, deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. He's going to deal affectionately. He's going to take care of them. Then finally, in verse 20, uh, it kind of sums everything up. At that time, the time of the restoration, the Lord, I will bring you back. Even at the time I gather you. For I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. So he's talking about bringing them back, gathering them back to the land. And he's going to do it right in front of them so they can all see it. Now, uh, that's the book of Zephaniah. And so... We need to think about it in terms of the kingdom. Okay, obviously there's some type of restoration happening here, but um, is this the kingdom or is it, is it something else? So why should we think that the restoration that's spoken of, especially in the last half of this book, why should we think this is talking about the kingdom? What would The kingdom's not mentioned here. It doesn't say kingdom Anywhere in here. Well, here's here's the thing to remember. We saw that there was a prediction of judgment on Israel, judgment on the nations, and then there's the restoration of the nations and Israel. The judgments that are spoken of here uh, really don't have any direct correlation in history. Okay? No direct correlation. In history, you know, there's no time when all the surrounding nations of Israel have been judged. It hasn't happened yet. Okay, there's been times when different ones have suffered judgment, but not when they've all been judged. So that must be future. If that's future, then the restorations is future. But even if we just consider the restorations that are talked about from Chapter 3, verse 8 on, if we just think about that, we can tell that that has not happened. Are all the nations serving and worshiping the Lord? Well, no. <laughs> can we say not even close? Not even close? How about, uh, how about Israel? Are they dwelling among the nations and having no fear? Uh, they fear every second of every day that somebody around them is going to do something crazy. That one of their neighbors is going to lose their mind. So they're in fear. They're in fear. And uh, certainly their enemies haven't been defeated. They're still in line for judgment. Um, the Lord is not in their midst. Right? I mean, if you, walk, if you go to Israel now and you walk around... You don't see the Lord? No, I mean, the language that's used here is He is there and they're met. So, uh, for those reasons, we can say this has to be talking about sometime in the future. It has to be future. It's got to be future from Zephaniah's perspective. And the point I want you to see is from Zephaniah's time to our time, there's nothing that match, matches this. There's nothing that matches it. So, it must be future from our time. And so when we read other places in our Bible and we start to see God's prophetic plan coming together, the time that fits best as a description of these things is the kingdom. Is the kingdom. It points to the kingdom. We have remnant language here. Right? Several times it mentions the remnant. Well, that's, that's kingdom language. 
Not just a remnant of Israel is going to be saved. It's going to be a remnant that goes into the kingdom. We have a time where all the nations of the earth are going to call on the Lord and serve him. That happens in the kingdom. I mean, we've read passages here in the past, not too distant past, where the kings of the earth are coming to uh, the Lord and giving sacrifice in the kingdom. There is a unity of worship. There is this forgiveness and spiritual renewal that we see take place. Israel is preeminent among the nations. And the Lord is their king in their midst. So this is all things that lead us to understand that this restoration that Zephaniah is talking about is a restoration that takes place in the future, from our perspective even, in the future, and this will be a restoration in what we call the Millennial Kingdom, the Messianic Kingdom. Okay, so that's Zephaniah in relation to the Kingdom. So let, I'm right on time now. So let me pray, and then we'll take any comments or questions. Lord.